0: So tonight I'd like to speak about inner beauty, inner beauty, that kind of um, beauty that comes from virtuous conduct in our speech and our behavior. And there's a Pali word for this virtuous conduct, which is sila, S-I-L-A. So I'd like to put that in a bigger framework as I go along offering the teachings on this So all of these teachings that we've been practicing here together have been supporting us towards this goal, this goal of the holy life. And um, this is what the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of mind, this goal of the holy life, what is also called the sure heart's release. All of these practices that we're practicing here are awareness practices, mindfulness practices, and particularly those practices that lead to liberation from all greed, hatred and delusion in our hearts, in our minds. Manindra summed up all these teachings by calling them the three pillars of the Dharma or the Dhamma, the three pillars of the Dhamma. In our practice, in the world, and in our practice on the cushion, we need to pay attention to each of these three areas of our lives in order to really have an embodied, integrated way of practicing. It's not just meditation. It's much more than that. So these three pillars are called dana, or the awareness practice of generosity, when we practice giving with a truly generous heart of compassion, when we give from an inner attitude of kindness. And so um, this practice of dana is a really uh, base basic practice of the dhamma. And it's not like just a practice on the sidelines, but it's something we really have to practice on a daily level because it is a beginning practice of the spiritual life, according to the Buddha. It's a practice where we begin to learn how to let go in, in everyday um, occurrences, not just to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> of course, that's the deepest practice that we do here in, in a meditation course, where we learn the skills to turn inward and see what's going on inwardly to let go of those things that cause harm to ourselves and others. It's also this practice of giving or generosity connects us really deeply to one another. It gives us that deep sense of safety when we're in this kind of web of interconnectedness. And we feel from that interconnectedness a deep sense that we can open to difficult parts of ourselves, difficult parts that we have to face in the world when we have that safety and that um, sense of connection around us. So this is the first pillar of the Dhamma, which is Dana or giving from a, gener- from a real sincere, generous, and compassionate heart. And then there's a practice of sila, which I'm going to fill out this evening. Sila is living in harmony with our own highest uh, values and also the values of the community we live in, so filling that out more this evening. Through this practice of Sila, we become more and more aware of what causes harm through our speech and our behavior, and a lot of our practice isn't really just about becoming calm and clear inside but we become uncomfortable and we learn how to face that discomfort that we face when we open to different parts of ourselves because we really have to understand and to take in the fact that there are default settings that go on in our minds and hearts that are put out in our speech and behavior just like that and we don't even know you know we we just have such lack of impulse control sometimes that it We just kind of let that go into our lives. So it harms us and it harms our community too. So these two awareness practices that we do in in our practice here on the cushion and every morning we take the precepts so we understand that we're doing our best to live in alignment with these precepts of non-harming. So these two practices of dana and sila uh, the practice of letting go the practice of letting go of harm also in the practice of sila they're deep very deep practices they're very important practices in our lives it's interesting that when the when the teachings came to the west one of our uh, teachers from thailand actually pointed out to us that long time ago that it's strange that, you know, the teachings come to the West and everybody's so interested in what goes on in the mind. Everybody in the West wanted this kind of understanding, this kind of meditative meditation. But there wasn't really the the teaching in the beginning of what's dhana, what's this very basic first practice of letting go in our daily lives. And then the teaching of, Sila, the letting go of harm, the understanding when we are um, acting out harm in our speech and behavior, being aware of that, and then refraining, that these two practices weren't given in the very beginning. So in, in years after that, there was more offering of those teachings, and they're often forgotten. These teachings aren't given um, a big voice sometimes, even in deep retreats such as this. So I really wanted to put light on them because these are the beautiful qualities of the heart that help us to live uh, in a better way and create the foundation for the deep meditation awareness practice of how we can transform our own hearts and minds in our lives. So these two basic practices that I just laid out are very reliable foundation for us. So we our hearts have the ability to really open to deep understandings of the Dhamma. It's interesting as I've been a teacher for quite a while now and and learning how to be a better one. You know, it's a steep learning curve of also being a yogi in the same At the same time. Um, And being with our elders, you know, our monastic elders, when people would come into the room and their sila was really beautiful. You know, the way they were careful about their words and their actions. And also, you know, it, it their generosity was there their sharing of their lives no matter how small it might be you know when you're in Burma somebody would just give you their last umbrella or something like that or share their food with you um, as a you know really deep act of letting go that our elders would say that person will realize the Dhamma in this life it would be really 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 known you know that The way that person acts and speaks in this life is like a a really strong foundation for deep, deep uh, unfolding of wisdom and deep compassion in their lives. And then I've also been there long enough to see it come true uh, with some people. So the last practice that the Buddha would give, the Buddha would give these practices in a gradual way, after giving the practice or the understanding of dana, and then after that the understanding of sila, then would come the practice in uh, bhavana. Bhavana means cultivation. It means cultivation of the heart and mind, cultivation basically of wisdom, liberating wisdom and the compassion that needs to go along with that. So it's good to understand the importance of all these three and not just think that it's important to cultivate meditation because the other two are also extremely important in, in our lives as Dhamma practitioners. It gives us a better chance of experiencing inner peace in our lives. It gives us a chance to really understand that deep happiness that doesn't depend on everything going just perfectly in order uh, for us we we lose that need to control and learn to integrate what's come into our lives and how to transform those moments so through the practices of dana and sila generosity and harmonious living we learn to navigate the beautiful times of our lives without holding on and the challenges of our lives without adding more harm to our own hearts and to people around us when it gets really challenging. In the time of the Buddha, he would offer the teachings in a gradual way. So first dhāna, and then after that sila, uh, harmonious living, understanding about the precepts of non-harming. And then after that, he would teach the four foundations of mindfulness. So these are, these first two are the basis and a preparation before moving on to cultivation of the heart and mind. So that's what bhavana means. It means cultivation. It means um, cultivation in a very wise way in the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of analogies with farming. Uh, Farming is used as a way to see how we could develop something beautiful, develop a crop that was healthy and strong, you know, the, the outcoming of our hearts and our minds in life. So basically, the Buddha would say we choose seeds that will cause harmony. We plant, we choose the seeds and plant the seeds that will cause harmony. And we put aside the seeds that will cause harm. So we're very careful about what we choose to grow in our hearts. And that's why the the Buddha used the word bhavana as cultivation, really wise cultivation, which is what farmers would do during that time. So we learn to open and have more kindness and intention to really be aware, be um, soberingly honest about what's going on in our hearts and to be open to seeing that and bringing awareness right there because awareness can just see things as they are and not hang on if it's pleasant, not push away if it's unpleasant. That's why awareness is such a powerful medicine for us because it does those things very automatically when awareness is very strong. It doesn't hold on to what's pleasant. It can enjoy it during the time, but it doesn't hold on to it. It doesn't push away or have aversion to what's unpleasant. It can just see that and not act it out and to probably choose something else to say or to do or to think. So it's that really deep... Um, Wise cultivation. So we learn skill sets here that are onward leading opportunities. We learn to take so that we are really going towards what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. So I'd like to read that. Um, it's a beautiful passage, the sure heart's release, um, from the Majumanikaya, number thirty where the Buddha gives a simile of the heartwood when he was talking to the Brahmins during that time. So, saying to the Brahmins, So this holy life, Brahmins, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind. This is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. And so, of course, along the way, we learn, you know, when, when, there are, when there's a great being, that great being has a lot of honor and renown and gain. And there are great beings in the Dharma, but we're not doing this for that for you know just being held up as a good person or the attainment of virtue of course very very important in the dharma but it's it's not just for virtue virtue is uh, the ground this the fertile ground that wisdom can grow from liberating wisdom can grow from a, a concentration is important but it's not what we're going for in the dharma We're going for that wisdom that liberates in the Dharma. So we gain a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of people who can speak the Dharma or write about the Dharma so beautifully, of course. But it's not for that. It's not for that kind of knowledge that we hold kind of cognitively. But it's for this unshakable deliverance of mind. That is the goal of the holy life. Where the this um, sure heart's release is the releasing, uh, the letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. So what is replaced or what kind of comes up in a very natural way is this deep giving, this deep sharing of our lives, of generosity, this very deep kindness, unconditional kindness, and this um, wisdom that knows how to do our lives in the best way possible, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings. So this is the Sure Heart's Release. So tonight, I'd just like to give you that um, grid that this sila is encased in and talk about sila more, this harmonious living, this virtuous conduct. So this virtuous conduct is practicing the refraining from harming precisely through our speech and our behavior. And so, um, you know, in a few days we'll be out in the world. And so what can we take out in the world um, that is really important to us? One of the things we're we're not often... We we may be... um, see what's coming up in our minds but what we have to know is is this beneficial or not is this kind of speech or action that we're taking is this going to be harming to anyone or or is it will will it be beneficial it's really deeply understanding that it's not about just seeing what's going on inside but also knowing what will it cause if i act this out if i say these things what kind of harm will it cause in a, in to a person or to a community? So every morning we take these as ways to remember their their importance in our lives. I have um, in the morning, even if I don't attend to a sitting, I'm I'll be quiet and lay down in laying down in my bed and just repeat them, you know, the the precepts just kind of know them and say may I act in, in accordance with the precepts today or if I'm not acting in that way or speaking in that way may it, something wake me up and um, and it's it doesn't always happen that way it's sort of have to always repeat always have to remind oneself to be careful so in In these five uh, non-harming ways that are given in the precepts, each principle is framed as a rule of abstaining, as a rule of refraining from harm, which also includes a positive side to it too, so that we're not just refraining from taking what is not given or not offered, but we're also at the same time turning our minds to how can we give. How can we offer something? How can we also be generous? So both sides, how can we refrain from harming any life and how can we do things that protect life? So it's good to see both sides, but the first part is refraining from harm because it's the first thing we might think about when we're like walking on a path and we just see our foot start to step on something you know, one of those little, um, what we call them geckos in Hawaii. Uh, and then you see, oh, your, your foot just automatically goes another way. It refrains right away. At the same time, it wants to not harm. It also wants to um, protect life. And so, when in the moment that we see that, check out your heart. It's like, it just feels really beautiful to do that. It gives us an immediate sense of the um, safety we're creating in our own hearts and all around us. It has a really wonderful feeling. It Just momentarily we can get joy. Momentarily we can have delight from something like that. So what becomes more noticeable, like I, I'm around um, in the Dharma, get to be around a lot of beautiful elders and teachers and even as the you know their things are get weaker in the body and the glow of of one's um, skin and you know isn't there as much and also the walking is a little stooped over um, the beauty of their heart stands up out so much and i just really look forward to that i i'm not so afraid of aging. Um, I, I do have the blessing of having Asian genes, so I, I haven't aged. People say you look the same as 20 years ago, or something. You—we're all needing more and more glasses to <laughs> to see that in each other. But mostly, I think it's a, it is the beauty of the Dharma that comes out. You know that I—I I just see. I feel pretty good about how I am in life. Of course, I say four-letter words, too, ask my peers. Um, but I may mostly do it to shock people. <laughs> Joseph gets a big kick out of it. So, um, you know, I'm not just the goody-goody two-shoes I just want to make a point of. Um, I can be fierce, too. You have to watch out for Kamala sometimes. But I do feel really good about how I'm careful, and I I sleep well at night <laughs> because of that. But and when I'm not, oh boy, it does keep me awake awake, and it does keep my heart pounding like a lot of remorse, you know. And but I think that it's good to have that sensitivity, to have that remorse is good, you know, when we think it over and. We can actually take action to not do that again, so there's there's just this beauty that comes out of being elderly, and um, what becomes more noticeable is that inner glow that it's it's this uh beauty of Sila is called an inner wealth in the Dharma because nobody you know when we die um everything that is around us, outside of us, we can't hold on to. But what we can keep and that goes on in our our lives is this inner beauty, this inner wealth, if you believe in another life. Um, And like Manindra says, you may not believe it, but it's true that (laughs) there is a rebirth so I can see rebirth in my own life you know if I practice these practices I can see the rebirth of virtue I can see the rebirth of truthfulness I can see the rebirth of um, mindful awareness because practicing it makes it come up more and more and more so inner beauty the qualities of a discerning wise heart and mind Compassionate and clear at the same time, where you're confidently clear about what leads to goodness and harmony, and you feed that. And then you're confidently clear about what leads to disharmony, and you refrain from that. So there's a signal that you get, you know, there's kind of an inner signal that when you're about to say something or do something, that is going to cause harm. It's like um, your heart beats a little faster or you have a sense of, like, don't go there. So this inner beauty gets developed starting from developing this deepening awareness we're practicing here because we get more sensitive in, in our lives. And sometimes it's, you know, people are looking for that calm and that, oh, you know, those, what our teacher would call spiritual goodies, that you would just have, you know, that, those beautiful moments when everything was just calm or that we just felt connected with everything around us. But actually you don't learn so much from that. You get a lot more traction out of seeing what's going on that causes disharmony and actually being able to face it. And then understanding, oh, this is how it comes up. This is how it feels in the body. This is how it feels somewhere between the body and the mind, which is an emotion. And we really sense, um, I'm going to be aware of that more because I want to be really, really careful that I'm not acting that out. And sometimes we still do. So in the ancient texts, this deepening awareness of unvirtuous conduct is really important when we really realize this is not virtuous conduct of speech or of our bodies, and uh, virtuous conduct is described as harmonizing because then we even in in a moment after ex- experiencing something unvirtuous or harmful to ourselves, right away our our awareness is really heightened. And we, we really want to, we don't want to harm. You'll see it's a very natural sense, except when the default settings take over right away. And of course, you know, it's out of our mouths before we can put the Dharma duct tape on our <laughs> mouths. My mother used to say, before you say anything roll it around your mouth you know, a hundred times that's kind of a saying in the Philippines and um, well, you know I have several times I remember my mother was one of those who would really put soap in my mouth really, if she heard me saying something, a lie or, um, you know I swore but I rebelled later because I swear whenever I want to now. But um, but especially saying something untrue. When one time I remember um, I my mother gave me some money to go buy something at the grocery. And it was during Easter time and on the way home. We were poor. So I always wanted to have one of those Easter bunnies that's marshmallow and covered with chocolate, you know. And... Um, So I took a dime of that money that was in the 1950s. I'm really old. So (laughs) I took a dime and I bought one of those uh, bunnies. And my mother had to count everything because she was a single parent too. So she counted everything. And she said, she told me there's there's 10 cents missing here. Where is it? And I probably had chocolate all over my mouth, you know. (laughs) And I said, "Mommy, I don't know.'t But I knew, you know, but I was scared to get a licking too. so I said, I-, "I don't know." And she said, "You go out and find it and don't come home until you bring it back." My mother was really a, a, uh, she could be really tyrant, too sometimes. but I learned from that. I looked around like it was, until it was dark time. I was hoping I would find a dime, which was impossible, because I lived in the projects of San Francisco near the Cow Palace. It would be impossible to find a dime on the floor, on the ground. So I went back and I said, Mommy, I, I, I spent it. And so my mom was glad I told the truth, but she still put soap in my mouth but I really learned from that you know, don't tell a lie whatever you do don't tell a lie and um, or don't even tell something I remember there's a sutta where the Buddha's talking to his son Rahula and says don't even tell <coughs> don't even say a lie as say an untruth as a joke like, like your pants are unzippered or something don't even say that as a joke that's not good you know because y- you really want to be really truthful so that you can see the truth. So it's really, it, it just got inculcated in me. Then I learned about, you know, this um, thing about not even as a joke, don't tell that a lie or say something untrue. So in the ancient texts, it describes virtuous conduct as living in, uh, in harmonizing In life harmonizing in two areas of levels of our lives number one is living in harmony with one's highest inner values one's highest integrity and a lot of our times in practice like this is when we come into alignment of what what is our highest value anyway we don't just live willy-nilly by things coming out of our mouths and 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 uh, and our behavior we really learn to look carefully and honestly. So it's living in harmony with our highest values um, and living in harmony with the highest values of the community we live in. So knowing what they are, and of course in communities we live in, it's really important to tell the truth in, in the, at the right time, in the right way, from a right inner attitude and all of that. So these two things together are called the bliss of blamelessness. When we live in harmony with our own inner values and integrity and we live in harmony with the highest values of the community we live in, this is called the bliss of blamelessness. It leads to a deep sense of well-being. We need this deep sense of well-being to do this practice. Otherwise it can be really, really hard to open to all the things we need to open to from our own traumas in life, from intergenerational trauma. We, when we do these practices really well, we learn to live in deep harmony with ourselves. So we have this kind of fearlessness in our lives. So this is from the words of the Buddha, the Anguttara Nikaya. And what is the happiness of blamelessness? Here the householder, a noble disciple, is endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action. When one thinks, I am endowed with blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action, one experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness or the bliss of blamelessness. This creates a mind that's really settled. No matter what comes up in our hearts and minds, we have this kind of to hold us, and there's a lot of things that cause kind of our minds to kind of break up in pieces sometimes, so we need this area of our lives to hold us together somehow. This is said to be the cornerstone upon which the Eightfold Noble Path is built upon, speech and conduct free from harm. So this kind of conduct composes the mind and heart, makes it quiet. It has far-reaching consequences when the mind is really quiet. So from my own experience, raising children and then having to go into retreat, and so many things have to be prepared and we're nervous and we're, you know, you get a little bit um, short and, and high-strung sometimes. I've gone into practices where before I went to the retreat I've had arguments with family members and with the children and so therefore when I got into retreat my heart would not be at ease and I would be have that kind of remorse that keeps me away from a settled and quiet mind for a while and then I'd have to really wait for the mind and heart to settle down or really do my practices of metta or coming back to my breath over and over again to settle. But when I would realize that it's really important to have uh, this kind of bliss of blamelessness even in our daily lives, I could have more harmony with my family. I could go to retreats and, and I could start out with a relatively cleaner heart and mind. And I saw that it was really helpful for my retreating time. So just for that, it's really, really important. The Dhamma places a great deal of importance as a starting point of practicing meditation. We don't come here and do the, and do the sila thing, the five precepts, every morning just as a repetition. We're reminding ourselves, you know, may, may I be kind to myself, to others over and over again so that that can really hold us in our practice so this in in the Buddha's words again a bhikkhu a, a person meditating like all of us approached the Buddha and asked let the blessed one teach me the Dhamma in brief and the blessed one answered well then bhikkhu Cultivate the very starting point of wholesome states. And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. View that is straight, by the way, means seeing clearly what leads to peace and what leads to disharmony and taking the way of peace. View that is straight. Then when your virtue is well purified and your view straight, Based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then develop the four foundations of mindfulness, meaning then you should do your meditation practice. So there are times, um, I don't know about you, but there's times even now in my life when I realize there are certain areas I have to clean my act up in life. And I really pay, try to pay attention to that places where I'm really not careful with my speech and speaking negatively about others or um, what my real intention is to say something about another person, um, to being more careful about complaining. There there's still those areas of my life I'm working on and um, I know that I'm more sensitive to it now too, so I'm really just sensitive to times when um, I can see when I said something to someone, just kind of see the look on their face of like, ooh, that that was painful, that hurt. I could have said that in a different way. Or when I, when I said something that caused harm in a community, when I would say something or do something um, that would cause harm, just even paying attention, even if it was my not my intention, but to pay attention to what was the impact of what I said, even though I didn't mean that impact. And to remember, oh, next time I'm going to be careful in that particular area. Because even though I don't intend to harm, I sometimes do. Because I don't know sometimes that certain things I say or don't say will harm someone. So realizing that refraining from harming also protects my own karmic stream. And I really want to protect my karmic stream. I'm really tired of things coming up in the you know default setting of my mind where I'm not careful. So it keeps coming up to remind me. It's tiring. It makes me weary that, you know, I keep having to face certain things. So I try to be much more careful. So when we're sensitive to this, we're really willing to see the hard bits and not just go for some, you know, far-out otherworldly experience where we're just in some kind of bliss. It's good to have that, but, you know, it's really not that onward-leading so when, when you'd explain some great deal of bliss to the teacher, the teacher would be ho-humming or reading something instead of listening to you, <laughs> boring, you know. Can you talk about something where it led to a change in your way of seeing life? That's what the teacher would want to hear. So there's this story about um, a toad, this story to some of you already because a lot of you have been here before um, I was practicing my first month long retreat and I went far away to do this so I wouldn't tempt myself to leave You know, um, so it was one of the first days of the retreat and we were we were, practice, we were reporting in small groups just like we have here so, I was in this group where people were reporting uh, to the teacher, was Sayadaw Upandita of Burma, and um, this was in Australia. And he was um, hearing the yogis report that, oh, I can, you know, have just perfect stillness of the body, and, or something towards perfect stillness, and the mind is so still, and it can be with, at the beginning, parts. Of the um, retreat, we were taught to be with the breath in the beginning to develop some concentration, so it can be with the breath over and over again, and don't see any defilements arising, you know. And I was would hear the reports of people and think, I am in the wrong group, <laughs> you know, I, I don't belong here. So then it came my time to report, and I was I was sleepy and restless and just said that, you know, that. Yeah, there's a lot of sleepiness because travel far and a lot of restlessness, pain in the body, aversion to it, etc. And so, say it out, just listened, just listened, and okay. And then um, to everybody and to my own report. And the next day in, in the Dharma talk, uh, either that night or the next night, he said, um, I want all of you who have reported to me in a way that was untruthful uh, and you were not precisely truthful about your practice because it's important to be really precise so that you can get a response that's helpful to you so you have to be really precise in what you say if you were not precisely truthful or not truthful at all for your own sake because it's not good to tell an untruth to an enlightened being basically, that's a big no-no for your own karma (laughs) right? (laughs) So, um, and Upandita was not known to be an arahant but he had some level of enlightenment. So he said please line up at my door uh, tomorrow morning and I want you to ask for forgiveness, not for your sake, not for my sake but for your sake I want you to say what you did what you did wrongly, what you said wrongly. I really thought about it. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, uh, this is not good. I, I knew already that, because I had practiced with um, Manindraji before I, I went to that practice, to Upandita, and, I, and it, it's really, you know, if you say something untrue to an enlightened being, it's worse karma than if you just say it out to anybody so that's why it said uh, Mahasi Sayadaw says even before you go into practice one of the 16 preliminary practices is to ask forgiveness if you've said anything similar to a lie to somebody who's been deeply experienced the Dharma because that will prevent you from going deeply so I thought oh I I really got to get this right exactly what did I say, you know, and I realized, no, I told the truth, so I didn't get in line. So these people got in line to say, I'm sorry, you know, I told an untruth, and this is what I'm actually experiencing. And that evening, when, the, when he gave the talk, he said, how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? And that's when I, I realized, oh, that's why the Buddha said that to Rahula. Not even as a joke, not say. So I realized how careful we need to be, you know, and how it said that these causes for careful attention in our practice are known as the two guardians of the world. So these two guardians of the world are what help us have this inner beauty and these two guardians are these uh, two words in Pali and I'm going to fill them out what they mean the first word is hiri it's some of you are interested in Pali so I'll spell h-i-r-i and um, this means a kind of um, moral shame and I'm gonna it's not what it means in English translation And the other um, inner guardian is called otapa. And it means a dread, a kind of dread of being excommunicated from your your community. So one is an inner reference point and the other one is an outer reference point. So these two uh, guardians in our lives are like spirit guides, but they're inner guides. They're inner guidelines, you would say. So hiri, this is translated as moral shame. Very bad translation in English. Very inadequate description of the word. Um, Shame is connected in the English language to something like self-aversion, and it's even deeper than that. You know, it it kind of has a a spiraling, uh, toxic effect on on the mind, the body. But in the Dhamma, the definition or the meaning is not associated with self-aversion at all. According to Bhikkhu Bodhi, an American Buddhist monk who is one of the foremost translators of uh, the um, Pali texts into English, he describes Hiri as a personal sense of conscience, a personal sense of conscience, an internal reference an inner sense that our words or behavior don't feel right when we have this sense it's like something's wrong with this picture you know that this is coming from my own from my words from my mind or through through my behavior it's actually a very healthy form of sensitivity when we have this an intuitive sense that what I say or might say or might do is hurtful to myself, because why? Because it feeds the habit pattern of keep keep on doing that. It it not only feeds hatred or greed, whatever it's expressing, but it mainly feeds delusion, the kind of not knowing, because you you just keep letting it come out of your mouth or your your actions and you just don't even have a sensitivity to that so we're lucky that we have this practice of awareness because it makes us really really sensitive to that so we what happens is we shrink away from that because it shatters a sense of inner integrity when we know that it's happening we shrink away from it so there's an example um when uh, I'm in a conversation, for example, and a thought arises that I, and this thought is starting to come out verbally, but there's an awareness that there's some criticism or judgment there, or that it is accompanied also by to harm someone in some way. So I may remind myself when I when I sense that hearing, oh, don't go there. Because if you go there, it's just going to feed that predilection to keep going to that place. So be careful. Just don't do this now. So at some point, that's when that thing, I would get this, um, this vision of getting this duct tape and putting it on my mouth, you know, this Dharma duct tape. Like, be careful. Don't go there. Just keep your mouth shut for now. And a lot of times, a lot of times, I'm saved by just not saying anything. So a lot of my time in the Dharma, these days, like in the last years or so, five, ten years, is like I see that I'm about to say something and I just don't say it. And I'm so relieved that I don't say it. Because it it just doesn't add to the conversation or doesn't improve upon silence. So just... Be quiet, it's, then your mind is more quiet. you know, then you can hear more, you can listen more instead of, you know, just saying something. Sometimes it's we should say something, of course, so of course, you know do say something, um, Make the stand you need to stand, stand up for in life. I'm not saying that. but there's a lot of times we don't need to say something. So what happens is we shrink it feels like we're shrinking away from it and this is about having respect for oneself protecting and preserving our own standards of honor in ourselves. So he is respect for one's own dignity one's own integrity it's a deep sense of that um, respect in a long term way that we don't want to Keep feeding something that's useless. You know, the, the kinds of speech that are backstabbing or useless speech or um, gossiping speech or um, hurtful speech. So I read in the Path of Purification, one of the great commentaries on the Buddha's teachings, of a simile of how Hiri is experience this um, deeply respecting oneself. It's when, like when we're just about to grab an iron rod. There's an iron rod nearby. We're just about to grab it, but we see that it's smeared with excrement. And what happens upon realizing that is we, we shrink away from that. And it's just like seeing that in your own mind. And you do, ooh, don't go there. No, just don't say that now. Not necessary. So one time I was practicing in in Burma. I've gone uh, to do some of my long practices there. And I was going... I came there from a very difficult time where one of my very good friends and I got into um, kind of one of the biggest tiffs we had ever been in. And I felt blamed by what she was saying and criticized and judged... And I left going to the retreat, having this blame back and not having things rectified. So there was all this stuff going on in my mind, what I could have said, what I should have said. And it was days, you know, of a lot of my walking practice, some of this stuff would come out and really, really bother me. And then I would notice something come up. It wasn't like aversion, but it was more like, um a noticing that, ooh, don't go there again. I'd see the mind start up again at that and I'd say to myself, mm, don't go there. Just refrain. It was being being like I was gonna kind of hold on to that iron rod, you know, that was filled with excrement. So it was shrinking back from it. So I went to Sayada Upandita and I was giving my report to him. And I said, this is what happens. This is a pattern that happens. And he replied, and I filled it out a little more, but short and to the point. You only had five minutes to give your report, so you would have to leave five minutes so you'd give, let that person or that, let that teacher say what they needed to say to you. So you had to say really precisely and not go on and on about stuff. So that's it really trained the mind to think precisely. And so that, that was a wonderful training. And In the beginning, I thought, just as a side story, I thought, how come I never get any answer? You know? <laughs> so I went to Sharon, and he's, Sharon would sit in in my interviews sometimes, Sharon and Joseph, and listen to me and other yogis. And Sharon said, you don't give him a chance to answer. You use up all your time telling him. So I said, oh, OK. I'm going to be more careful now. So, when I told Sayadaoji, he said, When you sense this pattern arising, withdraw. He said, Just when, and when he did that, it was kind of like he went back. He said, Withdraw your energy from this pattern. And I really got that sense that what that's what my mind was doing it was withdrawing. And it wasn't out of like aversion or fear, it was more out of like, this is dangerous, or this is not good. And so I asked him at that time, is this, uh, is this a wholesome state of mind, or is this an unwholesome state of mind? And that's when he described, oh, this is Here And I first began to hear about this, one of these beautiful qualities of mind, this um, one of these two guardians of the world, and then either it was that night or the next night, he gave a talk on hiri otapa. And some of this I'm channeling to you um, from the, some of those notes. <clears throat> so hiri, he he confirmed, is respect for oneself. It's respect for one's own karmic stream. You don't want to keep putting that those... Bad habits into the karmic stream over and over again because then they're just going to come up and you're going to have to face them again and again and again. This is samsara. So we see the danger to oneself, one's own karmic stream. In the proximate, the proximate cause of hiri is said, or of moral shame, to arise is self-respect. That's the proximate cause for hearing to arise, when you really respect your own highest values in life. So, this is from his talk. Seda Upandita says, Heary or or shame is a feeling of disgust towards the defilements. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to your senses, You feel a kind of abhorrence or shame at being caught off guard. This attitude towards the defilements is called hiri and this is one of the two guardians of the world. So that's hiri. And the last one I'll speak about is otapa. The direct translation of this is very inadequate in English. It's called moral dread or moral fear. And this dread or fear is not a defilement. This is actually a sense of social conscience. So the first one is an inner conscience and this one is social conscience. It means a sense of external reference in consideration for the respect of others. So it's it's a healthy fear or concern of doing something blameable. That there will be some blame come to you for whatever was said or done that our speech or behavior could be harmful to others so we try to catch it and refrain uh, from doing harm so otapa is this very wise sense of knowing and respecting communal standards like what is done in a family you know you don't lie to your mother <laughs> that's you know that's what i learned there um, and then also what are the larger communal standards you know what how do we respect people in our community and when you break those standards then it's like it causes an upheaval in 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 the community and it can in your own heart too so as we know a community is as fragile as one person's unconscious unmindful action or speech then the whole community feels that it's been toppled over. Just like we're very we're very keen on um, having the container of the retreat be in silence. And when anybody breaks that silence, it's like it gives permission to others to do that. And so then it starts to crumble. The container of the retreat starts to crumble. And you've been so good at, at doing that, at keeping the silence. <coughs> We notice that very much. So it's said that the proximate cause for moral fear to arise is respect for others, the opposite uh, of hiri. So the example in the path of purification is like when one is just about to grab another, an iron rod, and then realize that it's burning hot. And um, so we pull away from it immediately. So one of these um, things that are mentioned um, is we what we fear in the community is that people will shun us because we've you know we've harmed somehow someone or the community, and then people are kind of um, super careful around us or don't want to connect with us somehow. So Manindra would say, when there is this otapa, there is an inner signal, like a wise discernment that something is forming in the mind. So be careful, be careful. And it's kind of warning us to be careful about that. So these are the practices that we're learning here. Um, and to really just have a, more of a sensitivity a super-sensitivity to virtuous conduct. As the Buddha said, virtuous conduct has non-remorse as its aim, non-remorse as its benefit. And with this non-remorse, we can go more and more deeply into understanding the Dhamma and towards that, those liberating insights that really free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the wholesome qualities that make fertile soil for deep wisdom to grow. And without practicing dana and sila, um, it's harder. It's just harder for this to grow. So really paying attention to that in our lives. That's why at the end of a silent retreat when we're not speaking, it feels so clean in my heart because I didn't have to say so much, you know kind of the words that might come out, don't come out. I'm not trying to, you know, self-talk about how great my practice is or it's just, or how, you know, saying in the wrong way and untruthful ways, things. That's why we feel so clean when we get out of a time of silence. So these enable us to go very deeply in our practice, so I'd like to uh, end with a quote from our grandfather teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw. He was a teacher of Upandita and also the teacher of Shwayumin, who is the teacher of Utejaniya. You know, so there, all of these teachers are in the same lineage and was taught by the great Mahasi Sayadaw, who is known to be an Arahant, a fully enlightened being. So quoting him, so, you should protect your morality or your sila with great care, just as you would protect your very life. You should not be negligent about your behavior, thinking you can correct it later. Morality is especially important for those who are practicing meditation. They should even honor and respect it more than their lives and keep it fully purified. If you purposely and properly purify your uh, behavior and your speech, then you will have a clear conscience every time you reflect upon sila during your meditation practice. You will experience joy and delight, tranquility, happiness and peace. By observing the physical and mental processes every time they arise, you will see things as they really are. And gain further knowledge. Lastly, the Buddha. This magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, to depend upon, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, one risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So let's sit for a few moments and let the words dissolve.